Hi, it's Andrew Brandt, special guest this week on the Business of Sports. Jeff Miller, the NFL's point man on player health and safety. We'll talk about this week's initiative of the $100 million, Play Smart, Play Safe. Talk about the NIH gift and the discrepancies there, and we'll talk about all the initiatives the NFL is going on and how they handled the Cam Newton situation in the season's opening game. Before we get to that, let's talk about DraftKings.com. You know, you don't need to finish first to cash in. The player who finished 800th in week one kind of took home 100 bucks This weekend, $1 million in prizes. You know DraftKings, the destination for one-week fantasy. No season-long commitments. Play when you want, with who you want. Follow your team in action in real time. So don't wait. Go to DraftKings.com now. Choose your players for this week's contest. The promo code is Brant, my name, all caps, B-R-A-N-D-T. You play for free with your first deposit. That's promo code Brand to play for free for your share of a million dollars this weekend. DraftKings.com. Eligibility restrictions may apply. See website for details. Contracts. Salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Welcome back to the Business of Sports. Really happy to have my guest this week talking about NFL player health and safety, number one priority that's been on quite a trajectory in the past few years and always in the news in protecting players from themselves and protecting players in a violent sport. We have Jeff Miller, Vice President of Health and Safety for the NFL, and really happy to have him. Jeff, welcome to the program and, and really good to talk to you again. Andrew, thanks for having me. I'm happy to, uh, to to be on the program. You know, what I like to do with with the guests is, before we get to sort of the issues at hand, a little background, sort of how you came to be the NFL point man on this area, what, what background you come from, and uh, how you arrived at where you are. Sure. Um, I've been with the league a, a few years now, uh, after uh, working in, in Washington for a period of time in policy and politics. Um, uh, worked at the league in, in that capacity in Washington and then moved up to New York a few years ago and uh, had a focus on the health and safety uh, issues that uh, we're dealing with really from a policy perspective, how to improve protocols, how to invest scientific research dollars, how to work with our outside medical advisors and, and glean the best uh, advice we can from them about ways in which we can make the game safer at our level, uh, but also with an, with an eye towards how the game can become safer at all levels. Uh, and, and we've had um, quite, an, uh, quite an effort in, in, in those regards over the last few years with a lot of support from the commissioner, as you mentioned, and from the, mm-hmm. the 32 clubs in terms of level of investment and willingness to make changes to the game, uh, all in the effort of improving uh, the health and safety uh, uh, of the players. How much did your work beyond football? I mean, how how much did you bring that to the NFL, and what are kind of the similarities in sort of health policy beyond football to the NFL? Oh uh, well, I think I think having a, a background in 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 my case law and policy had a, a very direct application to the work here, which which um, in the past dealing with with uh, uh, challenging issues, um, relying upon experts uh, who are informed in in their specialties and translating, um, in this case, uh, scientific advice 
suggestion uh, and research into real-world applications is something I've done for a long time in my career. In, in the case of the NFL, having the ability and the platform to do that with a level of research and investment and access to experts that we have here um, uh, is uh, resembled in, in many ways when I worked for the government, the sorts of access to, to experts that we had who wanted input and had very creative ideas around new initiatives for whatever the cause may be. And in this case with the NFL, for the health and safety of our sport, being able to translate um, the really thoughtful and creative ideas of, of a number of outside medical experts and innovators and technologists and engineers into ways to try to improve the health and safety of the sport or continue to improve the health and safety of the sport uh, resembled the work I had done. And you talked about youth levels and lower levels of football and, and all sports, actually. It just The NFL is obviously the beacon. It's on the biggest stage. It has the biggest limelight spotlight on it. How much do you think about policy towards all levels of not only football and sport when you create policy? I know a lot of what you're doing is aimed at younger populations. And how much of that goes into your formulation of policy? Uh, it's, it's really a terrific question because, because the answer is, is quite a bit. And if I reflected the concerns of many of the medical advisors who work with us, take, for example, our, our head, neck, and spine committee, which are volunteer, who are volunteer right. experts, frequently neurosurgeons from the leading institutions in the country. Their perspective on this is, yes, to be able to help make football safer for those who play it and push science forward, more importantly, not just for the men who play at the NFL level, but understanding the application of moving neuroscience forward or engineering forward for the millions of kids who play our sport and for public health generally. And they look at um, their role as advising the NFL as a platform where they could advance um, their concern about neuroscience, public health, head injuries, concussions, whatever the case may be. And, that's, and I think that's the reason we're able to attract such a, a distinguished group of people. And so when we make changes, but we also know when we make changes to our game, whether it be rules changes, or protocol changes related to, to a specific injury or whether it's a, a, a set of research investments, the applications go far beyond our, our playing field. And so when we talk about, for example, millions of dollars of neuroscience research, that's going to advance the understanding of the brain far beyond football. Now, of course, football can be made safer as a result of, of a better appreciation for for head injury, understanding the dynamics of it, what the recovery is like, how, how treatment can be advanced. But that's going to have far broader applications than just us, and that's that's um, uh, a terrific aspect to it, and one that and that we do think about regularly as as we analyze how to invest our money and and what problems we try to uh, address. Yeah, and I guess I always come back to the question before we get any specifics is sort of the basic question: how to make what we think is an inherently violent game, how to make it safe. I mean, people are hitting each other's heads; that's part of the game. It seems to me, you know, you look at rules changes and kickoffs and the things that you are doing, but you sort of have to come back to that ultimate question, don't you? I mean, it is a game of collisions. So how to make it safe and how to make it a better game for our youth in terms of future impact, correct? Well, I don't think anybody would ever, you know, contest the fact that football is a physical game and always, always has been. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't analyze uh, parts of the game and look look for ways to take uh, aspects of it out. And that's always been the case with football. Andrew, you know that certainly as well as anyone going back 100 years. 
when you talked about uh, you know President Roosevelt you know intervening in the collegiate game to find ways to change the rules to decrease uh, the injury suffered then, eventually leading to the forward pass, eventually leading to the creation of the NCAA, later the NFL, etc. But some of the tactics that have been used in our game that have been taken out over the years, from the head slap, the leg whip, to any number of things, demonstrate the evolution of our game. So in, in the rule change element, you know, we talk about more than 40 rules changes related to health and safety in the last 15 years, many of them related to the head, are, are one way to continue to, to address um, the health and safety aspects of our game. And enforcing those rules and um, uh, penalizing or suspending players for violating those rules is one aspect of what we do. But with modern science and modern technology, you can also take a look very carefully at the equipment. You can take a look at the surfaces. You can look at, uh, importantly, protocols so that when a player does suffer an injury, any injury, that he is getting the most advanced treatment from some of the finest physicians to ensure that that injury is being treated appropriately. All of those things make that game safer. And as you change the game, whether it be the rules or the protocols or you advance the science, that does have a significant trickle-down effect because we do, in fact, work with other levels of our sport. And I'll give you one example. In, in, in 2011, when we agreed um, uh, uh, the, the current CBA with the Players Association, as you know, we decreased dramatically right. the number of contact practices. Well, that's had a, a significant trickle-down effect. We've seen tr uh, um, tremendous uh, a waterfall at the at the collegiate level. We've talked about some conferences now, including the Ivy League, that decrease significantly the amount of contact in practice, and even some programs like Dartmouth, uh, which eliminated entirely. We've worked with the National Federation of High Schools um, to create best practices. Um, members of our medical staff have to be precise uh, to create best practices in, uh, around the amount of tackling. We've worked with Pop Warner and USA Football, who have taken significant strides in those regards too. As we talk about how to how to coach the game, how to teach the game without the same amount of contact that may have existed when you or I, you know, were younger. And, and those are mm -hmm. all important advancements. And we have to keep be, continue to be open-minded about changes you can make in those regards that have an effect on the safety of the sport. It's, it's been on a positive trajectory. And I know that a lot of depictions over the past couple of years, whether League of Denial or the movie Concussion, are not the most positive look for the NFL I do think that represents a different time and place. I guess the question becomes, in the past years since the CBA, you and I have talked about sort of number of concussions and your health and safety report every year. I guess I, so, I sometimes find myself conflicted. Do we want a higher number of concussions <laughs> reported or do we want a lower? Because if it's lower, maybe it's not being reported. If it's higher... That's not good on the optics, but maybe that means there's more awareness of, of reporting. Uh, when you take into account your numbers, how do you value those kind of uh, uh, alternate assessments that I talked about? Uh, I, I think your your question is really insightful, and I think you've, you've well articulated some of the ways that we do think about this. The, the, first, the first point when we talk about concussion stats, which – you know, as you know, uh, concussions went up significantly last year in regular season games. Uh, right. I think somewhere in the neighborhood about 58% over the previous year after a couple of years where they decreased. The first thing we do is is remember that uh, we need to approach any of these, these injury issues, whether it be concussions or otherwise, with data, with objective facts. And that means we're relying on a very sophisticated injury collection system and an outside group of experts that parse that, those, those, um, those numbers for you. 
for for the people who are listening, all of the injuries that occur on a football field, whether it be a twisted ankle that doesn't even lead to a mispractice or or game, all the way up to a concussion that knocks a player out for for a game and, and maybe subsequent games, are collected. That data is then sent to a central repository, and and specific questions are asked about that data as we try to analyze trends. We try to we try to identify important aspects of it. If there if we want to ask, for example, whether uh, artificial turf in cold weather cities affects ankle injuries. We have the sort of data at our fingertips where we can ask this third party to go through and parse it. But getting back to your question specifically about concussions, we did see an, an increase last year. And we looked for the reasons as to why that was. And there were uh, a number of reasons that were suggested, any of which could could uh, be true or they all could be true. One could There, there could have been an increase in concussions. Um, just as, as a raw data. But we also did see with the addition of that athletic trainer up in the media box, including the ability for that athletic trainer to call a timeout last year for the first time, a medical timeout, which is, we think, the first time in all of professional sports that that element has been, has, has been offered, uh, to the addition a couple of years ago of unaffiliated uh, neurotrauma consultants or concussion experts on the sidelines who are involved or uh, in every concussion evaluation. We saw, for example, last year that twice as many players were screened for a concussion last year than the year before. And that's a positive to your question about whether mm-hmm. it's a positive or not. More players evaluated for concussion for some signs or symptoms of that injury, regardless of whether or not they are eventually diagnosed for it, is a positive for that individual player's health and player health overall. And if that led to more concussions being diagnosed, then good. That means, again, to your question, that we may have captured more than were captured the previous year. There's also anecdotal information. We hear this from coaches and from players um, and and uh, team doctors regularly that we believe there's a bit of a culture change with regard to player self-reporting. Now, I can't put a number mm-hmm. on it for you, but if you ask coaches and players and others and team doctors, they'll tell you that, that more and more frequently they've had players either uh, self-report to the team doctor or tell or identify a teammate who needs to be evaluated. And the suggestion is that may not have happened in previous years. So if all of those elements are true, then we are seeing a culture change. Now, where we are along the spectrum of culture change, I probably can't identify for you. There's always going to be more work that we need to do. But the addition of the unaffiliated doctors, the athletic trainers, the education of the players, the Players Association, for example, put together a terrific video last week that we collaborated with them on to educate players about the signs and symptoms of concussion and the protocol. All these things are important and move in the right direction, and more players who are being evaluated or who identify the injury and therefore that number adds up into the system, I consider that a, a positive a positive trend. Where that goes for this year, I, I don't want to speculate, but, um, but those numbers as, as you identified them are important and things that we can, we can work with as we try to find uh, thoughtful new ways to, to improve player safety. Yeah, and the playthrough culture change is, is really important. I know from my experience as an agent and a team executive, it's trying to protect players from themselves. Their natural instinct is to play and not think about the long term. Think about only the next play, the next practice, the next contract. So it's great to hear there is some anecdotal evidence, at least, of that change. And the medical timeout has always been interesting to me. That was the first year last year. Speak, if you will, as to the, the data on that from use last year, and and I have to ask why you think it was not used in the season opening game when we had Cam Newton on all fours at the end of the game. Sure. Um, this, just for, for definition reasons, the medical timeout, um, well, let me take a step back. 
if a, if, it, sure. if there's a if there's a player who is demonstrating some signs or symptoms of a concussion, there are any number of of individuals who can remove that player from the game. We saw that yesterday with the referee taking Tyrod Taylor out because he was concerned uh, that right. that Taylor um, may have suffered a concussion. That's a positive thing. The referees, the officials, are certainly entitled to do that, as are coaches, as are the team medical staffs, etc. And, and that player then gets evaluated for a concussion by the team doctor and the unaffiliated doctor on the sideline. Now, as it relates to the medical timeout, that specific, the specific definition of a medical timeout means that solely the athletic trainer who we identified in the media box can call that by, by alerting the referee to a player who has not received the same sort of attention um, that he needs and is lining up to participate in the next play. So if any of those other interventions, again, the, the official, the coach, a, a team doctor or athletic trainer has not intervened, and sometimes this happens in, in a hurry-up offense, there's no huddle, there's no incomplete pass, right. there's no break in play, um, a player is lining up and the athletic trainer has identified it, he can then, uh, from the media box, uh, uh, radio the, the, the referee directly and call a medical timeout. So it's really an issue of last resort if, if none of the other actors involved have have identified the injury and and help the player get the get uh, the attention that he needs from the medical staff. And so last year, uh, there were five um, where where mm-hmm. an athletic trainer called a medical timeout and the referee removed a player for evaluation uh, from the game. There were many, 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 many more instances where that athletic trainer in the, in the skybox uh, radioed down to the team medical staff. Uh, and sent video down for them to review of a player suffering an injury or specifically suffering a head hit to say you need to take a look at him. But that, but that athletic trainer didn't need to call a medical timeout because that player was already receiving care. And that's where we get to with, with Cam Newton. So uh, in this case, the, the team medical staff, the, the team doctor and the unaffiliated doctor uh, called up to the athletic trainer themselves proactively and asked for the video of the hit so they could evaluate that take a look at it and make a determination from there. Now there's an investigation of all of this and, and yep. uh, the player association is taking a look at it. We're taking a look at it, speaking to all of the many actors and reviewing any of the reports that came from it. And that's still uh, under is underway. And that's everybody's right to go ahead and make sure that the protocols were followed. So that's what they're doing. But in that case, the, the athletic trainer didn't necessarily need is my interpretation to call a medical timeout because the team doctor had all any unaffiliated doctor, had already asked for the video. They were already on it, and and that's um, and and in that case, the athletic trainer would not need to call a medical tenant. With the Newton, there was uh, it seems to be a little bit conflicting whether he was actually examined, whether he came over. I mean, I know there were administered penalties during that sort of two minute period, but I think the NFL statement talked about video as you just described the process. But there was some report out there that he was seen by people actually face to face, which wasn't shown on the television broadcast. Do you know which of those is accurate? Was he is was it all video review or was it actual being seen by a medical personnel? Well, we're going to let the investigation sort of proceed, and uh, and both the NFL okay. and the Players Association will reach their conclusions on that. The the, the team doctor and the unaffiliated doctor, as I understand it, evaluated uh, the video, requested and evaluated the video as it was sent down, and whether or not the protocol was followed uh, specifically and all these aspects and the questions that you mentioned are things that the, the review will eventually 
consider or currently considering and and make a determination of. Um, as we've said before, we don't have any reason to believe that the protocol wasn't followed, uh, but it's important to make sure that that, in fact, was the case. And if in future instances there needs to be investigation to make sure it's followed, then we, the Players Association, jointly maybe, will will pursue those because this is this is important and it's important that we get this right. Absolutely, and and this investigation is are these separate investigations between the league and the union, or as you talked about, a joint investigation? Well, it's it's the same set of facts, right? It's the same right. set of uh, from a, from your legal perspective, same set of witnesses, right? Same, the same set of facts that will be evaluated. So the, the parties can reach separate conclusions should they choose, and, and the enforcement protocol permits for that. And, and if they do reach separate conclusions for an arbitrator to make an ultimate determination. And again, the, the point around the investigation is not to second-guess medical decisions. It's simply to ensure, well, not simply, but it's to ensure that the protocol was followed. So if a, if a, if a medical professional made a determination on a medical basis, we're not second-guessing that medical decision, uh, nor is the Players Association. They're just making sure that the steps of the protocol as determined between us and the Players Association jointly were, in fact, followed. Yeah, but uh, to follow up, is this a joint investigation? Even though I know we're dealing with the same facts, but are they looking at the facts in their way and you're looking at the same facts in your way, or is this both of you working together? Well, the, so, some of the interviews could, could be done jointly. Some could be done separately. Okay. And the conclusions that, that the NFL or the NFLPA reach can be different should, should that happen. So however you determine it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, an investigation. And if the parties disagree as to what the conclusions are, then I guess you would say that they reached a separate conclusion. And could there be, as a result of the investigation, could there be discipline? And if so, would that be to... Uh, team personnel to independent medical personnel. How, how would that work? Yeah, the the enforcement protocol laid out um, uh, in joint agreement between us and the Players Association this past summer identifies um, uh, a penalty on the club, not on uh, the individual uh, medical staff, but rather on the club. Okay, and it would so it would be if and if and it's a big if if there is. Discipline, it would be to the Panthers. That's right. Okay. If, if, if there's discipline, that's right. Correct. And continuing a, a sort of a big week in this area, and why I wanted to have you on, Jeff, is this the $100 million announced gift or initiative, excuse me, on uh, the opening, right after the opening weekend uh, with the Play Smart, Play Safe initiative and the as I understand it, $100 million, uh, in addition to $100 million that the NFL is already spending in this area. Uh, talk about this initiative, because uh, it was interesting that it came out, and it came out uh, at the beginning of the season here. Sure. And just, just to, to um, correct one little element here, that the $100 million that you cited that the NFL is currently spending um, uh, is done with collaborators. We have terrific partners in GE, Under Armour, and others. Uh, that are contributing significant resources to some of those ends. So I don't want to short, I don't want to short trip our partners. Right. But going forward, okay, this hundred million dollar commitment around the Play Smart, Play Safe campaign is uh, the league's investment. And there's two primary uh, purposes behind the money. Um, one is a significant effort in the biomechanical engineering space, and that's to say that uh, a number of biomechanists with whom we've spoken have said unanimously that they believe that um, 
the helmet and other safety equipment can be advanced significantly over uh, where it is now in a short amount of time. And they cite the fact that current, very modern techniques used in, in you know, injury analysis, injury prevention by engineers aren't being used uh, and applied to the helmet. So, for example, in the automo- automobile industry, we've seen significant gains in automobile safety over the last generation. We've seen a significant decrease, some cite 80% or more uh, decrease in mortality in automobile accidents over the last generation or so. And the use of very advanced engineering techniques, the collection of significant amounts of data, the engagement with significant number of biomechanical experts and engineers to wrestle with these questions hasn't, ha- hasn't happened with protective equipment in sports, specifically the helmet. And so what this plan does on the engineering side is take many of these experts, and so we are working with Duke and Penn and University of Virginia and others, and said, give us a roadmap that would get us to a similar place using all of the most advanced techniques, all of the most advanced tools, how we would collect more data, maybe with sensors and, and helmets on the players to identify exactly what's going on to the helmet and to the head when a player is hit or when a player's head hits the ground and causes a concussion because that currently is not measured and the, and the equipment, the tools to measure those things doesn't currently exist. So we're going to have to find ways to create incentives for the market to do this. And should we be successful in, in advancing the tools, which we will, and being able to measure things better, which we will, and being able to provide an incentive for the marketplace to, make, um, uh, to take all of that information and address the problems, we believe that we'll end up with uh, substantially better helmets in a relatively short period of time, three, four, or five years. And if we can really get to the point where we can measure the specific sort of hits that any individual player takes. So, for example, we know that offensive linemen take a more repetitive, more modest-sized hits to the head during the course of the game than a wide receiver who will take an occasional hit to the head, hopefully very few. But when they do, sometimes that's a very significant-sized hit. Yet the equipment that they wear is exactly the same. Right. And, and that doesn't have to be the case. If we can measure exactly the sort of impact, the type of impact, the source of the impact, the direction of the impact that an offensive lineman hits, it takes, you could potentially adjust a helmet specific to that position that is most likely to mitigate the force involved and to, and to decrease the number of injuries that he suffers. And the engineering experts believe that that is all very possible. So we're engaging in that, as well as a significant uh, uh, increase to in the amount of neuroscience research that we're going to fund, uh, again, through independent experts uh, managed by a scientific advisory board, the league isn't going to do this research, just like the league isn't going to produce helmets. The league is going to try to create incentives for experts to create these things. We won't benefit monetarily from any of that. And we'll find third parties who are really the leaders in their field to attack the really hard questions, the engineering questions as well as what are the long-term effects of concussion? What is the incidence and prevalence of neurodegenerative disease among uh, contact sports participants or football? And whatever other questions that the leading experts prioritize as the things that are important for us to answer for the benefit of our sport at all levels, and hopefully for, for other sports as well. I think it's great on the, the helmets. That caught my attention from Commissioner Goodell's letter about the position-specific helmets. It's always occurred to me that these helmets were designed and it's hard to think about how they prevent the shaking of the brain that causes concussions. So... Anything better on that end is obviously going to be having long-term ramifications. I guess the question is, 
again, with the union, I know the union has donated money to Harvard and doing, I don't know, you can tell me similar research. Um, is this a coordinated effort? And are we going to get to a, a point where both sides of the labor equation are, are pushing for this in similar ways? Well, as it relates to the engineering project, which is, as I mentioned, one substantial element of, of the right. announcement of the Play Smart, Play Safe campaign, uh, we've had uh, very engaging conversations with the Players Association around it. They have two um, biomechanical engineering uh, consultants that we've worked with in the past on helmet testing and, and other, other things with our own consultants, and um, their uh, experts are integral to this, this roadmap, to this project. Uh, they're terrific, and the Players Association has been invited in and has been more than willing to, to offer the, the resources of, of those experts to help out in the project, and we're going to take them up on it. So it's, it's uh, a terrific effort in that regard, and as far as transparency goes and, 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 and the direction of the roadmap, um, the Players Association will be informed and involved and invited to participate at every step along the way. And I think that there'll be a terrific uh, addition in that regard. In addition, there's, there's other projects that we'll work on and other projects that play, the Players Association works on independently, which is also fine. But on, on much of this work as it relates to the health and safe, safety stuff, as you know, even in our medical committees, the Players Association has a role to play in all of that. As it relates to the injury collection, they have access to the same data we have. And as it relates to some of these projects, we're working uh, with them collaboratively. And I think that's the best way to go about it. And that's a good point. I, I think when we talk about the $100 million initiative this week, we have to mention right after that, there's a letter uh, from a Republican group uh, about the $30 million grant to the NIH Foundation. And, and I want you to speak to it. I know in 2012... This grant was made, and we had this report, I don't know, in the Democrats months ago that talked about some discrepancies, some uh, some concern that the NFL was directing funding, that there were restrictions placed on it, and it was a concerning note. And here we have a letter yesterday, um, again, bringing to, to, to front this issue of NA. NIH involvement and donor influence. I want you to speak to it, uh, if you would, Jeff, and talk about what's sure. the status of this current letter uh, in response to something that came up months ago about the NIH funding. Sure. So uh, you're right that in 2002, 2012, sorry, we made a 12, $30 million yeah. commitment to the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. Uh, governmental agency that works with the NIH to fund research. Um, the parties have, have uh, well, the NIH has granted somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, about $14 million of that. And um, there was a Democratic uh, staff report that came out a few months ago that suggested that the NFL tried to, tried to influence the granting of the rest of the money. Um, We've said repeatedly that that simply is not the case. Uh, while there was discussion among members of our Head, Neck, and Spine Committee with the NIH, those were collaborative conversations done in the normal course. And the report that came out yesterday from the chairman of the, of the Energy and Commerce Committee and three subcommittee chairmen who did a full investigation of this 
decided that they were going to send all of uh, this information to the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services, which is a body uh, empowered to investigate the government's actions. So the Office of Inspector General will look at the NIH's actions in here um, as related to this interaction with the NFL. Uh, some of the conclusions that the committee reached in their letter yesterday included saying things like, there's no evidence to suggest that the NFL would not have funded the studies they're talking about the studies presented um, by the NIH. Uh, if requested by the NIH, uh, they said the, the Republicans concluded that the NIH and the FNIH engaged in a month-long month -long collaboration, collaborative dialogue with the NFL, reinforcing the perception that there was nothing improper about their, meaning the NFL's actions. And they went on to say that, that some of the work that was done in that previous report in May tarnished the reputations of some of the leading traumatic brain injury uh, researchers and medical experts in the country. These are people that we rely on and whose names were dragged into this. And so uh, uh, it's consistent with what we have said all along, which is that our engagement, our medical advisors' engagement with the NIH has been collaborative on on you know, a scientific back and forth, which is in the traditional course of how these things work. And that um, uh, we look forward, uh, by the way, to, to finding, finally funding uh, research through the NIH. Our commitment to them of the, of the $30 million is intact and has always been. And we um, are hoping to get some of this behind us so that the NIH can continue to do the work that we engage with them to do with the money that we've provided. And I think a focus of the, at least the Democratic report was around a certain doctor, Dr. Stern at BU, uh, who, again, this is the, the discussion of whether there was concern from your end about he being involved, he having been a consultant to the plaintiff's committee of the concussion lawsuit against the NFL. Can you speak to Dr. Stern and his involvement or lack thereof? No, and you know, not 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 specifically. The the first tranche of money that that the NIH spent from the NFL's commitment went to Boston University. About half of it right. did. Uh, the NFL, I think, about six million dollars in that case, to be specific. The NFL has made three contributions to Boston University that I'm aware of to pursue for them to pursue research on CTE uh, and the long-term effects of concussion. And as we've said in the past, uh, any research in these areas is something that, that is important that we take seriously. And the notion that uh, BU received uh, nearly half of the first grant of money through the NIH to study CTE is something that um, uh, is, you know, the, in the NIH's discretion and certainly nothing that would cause us any concern. We had identified for the NIH in the first uh, tranche that we were hoping to advance CTE research, and this is a grant that they chose among others, but a significant one that they chose, and, and BU is hard at work with those resources that uh, the, the, F, the NFL uh, contributed and flowed through the NIH. And what is, so again, what is the status of the NIH grant at this moment? It, our commitment to the NIH is exactly what it has always been. Okay. We committed $30 million. We intend to spend, hope that they spend that money. The NIH has the discretion as to how to spend it. Uh, in fact, I'll be attending with a member of our medical advisory committee an NIH workshop next month uh, in the Washington area, and uh, we'll continue our conversations with them. The, the bottom line here, 
is that some of this back and forth with the NIH has led to the fact that some of this money has not yet been spent. Yes. And I think that's a frustration to everybody because that's a lot of money from a scientific perspective that could be better used actually investigating science. And we hope that we'll come to a, uh, a, an answer with the NIH in, in the relatively near term so that they can spend that money and that the scientists can get hard at work advancing the science. In addition, you know, we made that commitment this week around the PlaySmart, PlaySafe campaign, both on the engineering side but also in neuroscience research. And we're going to look to independent advisors and experts to help us prioritize research that needs to be spent, money that needs to be spent to advance the science um, uh, around concussion and head injury and some of the other priorities that they'll come up with. And, and, and to finish that subject up, is the NIH money not being spent because of any waiting period, or is it because of these congressional inquiries? As you said, it's better off being spent and used for neuroscience. Why is it not? Well, that's, that's probably a, a question better for, for them than, than for us at the end of the day. We're interested in spending the money just like we were interested in the first tranche of money going out. And like I said, we're looking forward to conversations with the NIH to find general aims for that money to be spent, and then they can go about their business of identifying the grants in which to spend it. Okay. And my last question, I appreciate all the time, Jeff. The, uh, obviously, one of the uses towards this money is, is to, to do long-range and I think longitudinal research about CTE. There was a moment last March... And I think it was portrayed unfairly, I think, as a as a sort of a gotcha moment with you and uh, uh, sitting next to Anne McKee's examine all these brains with evidence of CTE, whether I think the question was whether there's a causal link between that and football. And you said, yes, there is. Uh, and that was, as I said, it seemed like a gotcha moment. I want you to have a canvas to explain that and talk about what's being done towards uh, the sort of degenerative disease of CTE that seems so debilitating. Sure. And, and, and as we discussed, a significant amount of the NFL's research dollars have gone to, to study CTE to help define it and, and um, examine it. And a lot of that work has been done by BU, and that's, that's good for the advancement mm -hmm. of science and eventually for, the, for a better appreciation for what can be done to prevent it over time. As it relates to the congressional testimony, it's important to remember that we've had, as you know, Andrew, we've had posters hanging in our locker rooms for years now that say that if uh, that concussions are dangerous and, and if gone untreated or improperly treated can have long-term effects. So there's nothing no notable in that regard and something the league has said for a period of time as it relates to the long-term effects of head trauma. The part that I went on to say in the congressional testimony, um, uh, and it, it remains you know, just as true today as it did then, is that what's not known, according to the medical experts and the people who advise us and who are going to help determine where this research is going, is what causes it? What's the incidence and prevalence mm -hmm. of it? How, you know, sort of some basic questions around um, CTE. And that's the sort of thing that this money that the owners have committed is are going to help fund the research behind it. And that's a, that's a terrific development. That's a positive de development because the more we know about these things, the better off um, we'll be able to, to, you know, to fund research that's going to be able to help uh, identify the issues and, and help players who may need uh, any assistance. So, so that was the, the nature of the comments, the, the comments there, and and the commitment of the league and the and the owners 
um, resources both to the NIH as well as to the commitment that we just talked about, the Play Smart, Play Safe campaign, is going to continue to push forward to invest money in advancing neuroscience research to answer some of these tricky questions and, and get answers that are going to probably benefit a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, and I think I, just, I should just note here, there is no living diagnosis for CTE, which was a key factor in it not being included in the uh, NFL concussion litigation settlement, which is all but done with a lingering appeal or two to the Supreme Court. Final question, Jeff, and, and uh, it, it's the one about sort of these, these reports of future health of football, future participation rates of football. We have kind of the Chris Borland one-year retirement, another guy, A.J. Tarpley, and you have some players seem to be having early retirements, even though they had productive careers six, eight, ten years in the NFL, but walking away on their terms. Does any of that concern you in the league? Does any of that have more than anecdotal impact to how you present the game when you see some players walking away at relatively young ages? Well, our game, our, our effort here is to make the game safer through rules changes, through protocol changes, through the investment of scientific research and biomechanical engineering dollars, and to hope and encourage for the transformation of the game as it relates to those protocols and rules changes throughout our sport and hopefully to other sports. I think it's I, I, I think that it, it, it's fair to say that there is nothing um, that's a higher priority at the league than continuing to make the game safer for those who play it at all levels. And as a, the father of you know a nine-year-old who who plays tackle and it's his first game tomorrow, you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm you know thrilled with with how the game is being played and, in, and increasingly how the game is being taught and some of the changes that you can see in front of you. Now not not everything is here tomorrow. And I know that there's always a frustration with wanting, uh, you know, to make changes yesterday. But science is going to enable a lot of this. The, there is all sorts of significant reasons for hope around innovation and scientific advancement, as well as around the culture change of our sport, which, which you know better than anyone, uh, from the way that it may have been played or coached or practiced just a few years ago to where it is today, and more importantly, where it's going to go tomorrow. So this is is a terrific time for, for our sport and the, and the attention being paid to these issues uh, by the league, by the owners, by the players, by the people involved in, in our sport is may, may, it may have never been higher than it is right now. And if that's the case, that's positive and we need to be able to take advantage of that momentum and continue the change and the evolution that, that we're seeing. Um, I'm very optimistic about what the future holds. Jeff Miller, point man for the NFL for player health and safety. Thanks for being with us, going into all these different topics, keeping you a long time to get uh, get a real deep dive into this important topic. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.